This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. Before we take a look at the scriptures, there's one other thing I want to share with you. And that's the whole purpose of what we've been doing since the fall. We've been talking about uh, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit. We've talked about spiritual gifts. We've talked about the Holy Spirit. It really began back in John 14. Now we're looking at the Book of Acts, and we're not going through it word by word and verse by verse, which we did about six years ago. What we're doing is we're looking for the Holy Spirit moving in the lives of these people, because I'll be real honest with you that the Christian life in the flesh is impossible. It is nothing but a bunch of rules, and it's guilt. It's failing and wishing you could do better and, and be walking according to the flesh and not according to the spirit. And it's ups and downs and ups and downs and it's hypocrisy and it's very difficult. Matter of fact, it's a crazy thing to do void of the Holy Spirit. I mean, why put yourself at odds with the world unless you're spirit empowered to do that? So once you're saved and the Holy Spirit comes to live within you, then it seems like from Scripture the the point of sanctification now rests on you. Salvation is 100% God from eternity past until the point that you were justified in Him. Romans chapter 8 and many other Scriptures teach us that. But from that point on is when your free will kicks in. Because now he has changed you, now he's placed the Holy Spirit in you, now he has created you in a new, as a new creature. You were once dead, now you're raised to a newness of life. The old man has been put to death, the new man is now alive. And we glorify God by answering this simple question that he asks us, I have done all of this for you, what are you prepared to do? All the other passages in Scripture that deal with sanctification, the emphasis is on us. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body as a living sacrifice. You lay yourself down for the re- understanding of the renewing of your mind. Well, how do I handle sin? That you take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. You do this and you do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. We give God glory by how we live with the gift He's already given us. Without understanding who the Holy Spirit is and without having Him live vibrantly in your life, your Christian life must really be terrible. I mean, where's the joy? Where's the passion? If we go to church on Sunday and listen to a sermon and, hey, that's kind of cool, and we go out the rest of the week and do exactly what we want to do, not not living in stark obedience to him like Jesus lived to his Father. So as we're going through the book of Acts, or part of the book of Acts, and we're looking at what the Holy Spirit does in the lives of others, he wants to do the same thing to you. 
These people are not any more special than you are other than the fact that maybe they have given more or maybe they love more or maybe they are more dependent on Christ than we are. Jesus to us is somebody who seasons our life and helps us make our decisions based on our wisdom and our wants and what we think is best. But back then they had nothing but Christ. God, what do you want us to do? How do you want us to move? I mean, give us, tell us what your will is. I don't want to know anything but Jesus Christ and him crucified, Paul said. So as you go through here, through this, understand that the point of this is for you and I to throw off the apathy, throw off the carnality. I mean, I mean, think about that. The things that hold us back from a deeper relationship with Christ, that grieve his Holy Spirit, do you realize how lame they are compared to the resplendent glory of knowing Jesus? A television show that you've been con- convicted as you should give up, but you don't want to because you're so intertwined with the characters. Some friend that uh, that is meeting some felt need in you. I just feel important when I'm around them, but you're sinning in that relationship and, and, and finding your self-worth tied up in something that's transitory at best. And did, All those things are just so lame. Once you've tasted and then been engulfed and submerged in the blessings of the Holy Spirit. Amen? So understanding that, what we're going to look at is the Holy Spirit, how he functioned in the early church. We began in Acts chapter 1, and of course, and there's some events that took place. Acts chapter 1, verse 4, that they were told that a promise was coming. It says, uh, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. And then Acts chapter 1, verse 8, of course, once that promise comes, they're, to, they're on a mission. They're, they've got a task in their life. I don't know what God wants me to do. I don't know what, my, my life doesn't mean anything. Then you've never read Acts chapter 1, verse 8, because that's a mandate that were you to go out and when you receive the Holy Spirit, that you're to be witnesses for him in their context where they lived and to the outlying areas and to the uttermost parts of the earth. In our context, in our home, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our state, and on and on and on. After that, we have the fulfillment of that. Acts chapter 2, we talked about that. Ten days later, on the day of Pentecost, this prophetic feast of Israel, all of a sudden they were with one accord and the Holy Spirit came in a mighty way and there were these cloven tongues of fire that came upon them and it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit and what happens when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak the word of God, boldness in other tongues as a, as a sign here as he gave them utterance. Peter stands up in verse 14 and preaches this 297 word sermon taking out the scriptures. And all of a sudden, incredible things took place. 3,000 people got saved just like this, had the first converts in Acts 2, 41. And then the early church, faced with this massive growth of these people who just wanted to know about Christ, had to try to figure out how to manage this. And it doesn't say they did anything. The people just came together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and devoted themselves to the teaching, the apostles' doctrine, and to koinonia, fellowship, the breaking of bread and and prayers. And, And then amazing things took place. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Acts chapter 3, verse 1, which we're going to look at today, you have now not the first sign and wonder, 
because it says in Acts chapter 2 that there were plenty of signs and wonders and miracles that were taking place by the hands of the apostles. But you have the first one that's listed in detail to let us know the missionary mission of these disciples. And then right after that, whenever the gospel is proclaimed, you have Peter preaching his second sermon, which is a little bit longer. This is happens to be 301 words, discounting a few scriptures. And then all of a sudden, persecution takes place. Because that's what happens when you're a follower of Christ. Because we have light and we live in a world of darkness. And as Jesus said in John 3, the darkness wants to stamp out the light because the light, just by its presence, exposes darkness's evil. So let's just look at what happens here. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 42. This is a small review of a couple verses that uh, what we talked about on Tuesday. It says, and now they, and this is, of course, after the 3,000 people got saved. So we are already 120. Now there's 3,120. The early church continued steadfast, or literally they were devoted or persevering and not fainting. It wasn't like we just came on Sunday and I'm tired. I stayed up too late last night. I don't want to come. It's just, it's just a bore. I have to get dressed and drive. These people were so devoted to each other and more importantly, devoted to the Lord that they continued steadfast. I mean, I've been saved. I've been redeemed. I need to learn the rules and the realities of this kingdom of God. I've lived for 42 years in this kingdom and I know how that works. I have got to make my own way or I'll be crushed. Somebody smacks me on the cheek. I hit them harder. You know, you bring a gun or you bring a knife. I bring a gun. I understand how that works to my own self be true. What I think is, is most important. And if I'm not happy, ain't nobody happy. That's that, that's word, that world. But now I've been changed and I've been moved into the kingdom of God. There's a whole separate group of realities that these people didn't know anything about. I need to know, I need to understand what faith means. I I need to understand what redemption is all about. Now that I've been saved and redeemed and changed, my old man has been set aside. There's a new man inside of me. God, what do you want me to do? So they devoted themselves and continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine and their teaching. Show us, what have you learned from Christ in three and a half years? Tell me about the Sermon on the Mount. Tell me about the, the kingdom parables. Tell me about the miracles. I just can't get enough of Christ. You remember how it was when you first got saved? Do you remember how it's not like that now? Well, what happened? Did the glories of Christ all of a sudden become boring Or did we get our focus off the passion of our life? In the Apostles' Doctrine and in Fellowship, which is koinonia, and I shared this on Tuesday, this is not what we're going to be doing after church. After church, we get together and we have what we call in our culture fellowship, which is like a Christian get together. So we have a table out, we have food, we'll all sit together, we'll talk and, you know, catch up. Probably not much spiritual stuff going on. We're talking about work and we're talking about this and things that have happened to us. We're just kind of getting together and getting to know each other better. And, and that's a good thing, but, but that's not this kind of fellowship. This kind of fellowship is a partnership. It's like, like I shared Tuesday. It's like Gil and I decide to go on business together. And, uh, I, I, I put everything that I own in this business, and he puts everything in, he owns in this business. And if this business doesn't make it, both of us are bankrupt. 
and I'm, I'm willing to work 100 hours a week and he's willing to work 100 hours a week. And when he's hurting, I fill the void because if I don't, I'm, I'm actually hurting myself. And when I'm hurting, he fills the void and, and what helps him helps me. And we're, we're bond together by a common goal. It's, we have a fiduciary responsibility with each other. That's, that's what this koinonia means. Because all these people had left everything for Christ. They were all together, and it talks about selling their possessions and, and meeting everybody's needs because nothing else mattered but that. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread, which is either the, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper or it could also mean just eating meals together and in prayers. Not just prayer, just one prayer, but in prayers continually for each other. And when they were so united under the lordship of Christ, it said, then fear, this profound reverence, honor, and respect, literally a dread and a terror of who they were and who this awesome God was that they served, this fear came upon everyone. It's not like I'm going to sin or I'm going to defraud somebody because I'm afraid they're going to find out or I'm going to pay a price for that. It's because I serve a holy, righteous God who the Old Testament says is angry with sinners every day. And instead of his wrath being poured out on me, it's being poured out on his son. And he's redeemed me from that. And I have this, this incredible, profound honor and respect. And if you don't, and by the way, the church today doesn't. They, they view God as kind of like a good buddy, like some big man upstairs. Well, you need to spend some time on your face in front of him. And he will show you who you are by just comparing you to his resplendent glory. When you realize that we'll... We'll quote like every other person who ever met the Lord. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a worm, God. I'm, I'm, I'm nothing. And everything that I have is something that you have given to me. It says, and fear came upon every soul. And watch this. And many wonders, which are mighty works and miracles and signs. That's taking a wonder and giving a, a, a pointing that wonder to God, a sign, something attesting to a miracle that leads to something beyond the miracle itself were done through the apostles. So however much time took place from Acts chapter 2, verse 43 and to 47, and Acts chapter 3, verse 1, however minute much time, was it, whether it was days or, or weeks or maybe even months, the fact is that the church is moving and God is moving and there are signs and wonders and miracles that are taking place because the church itself was sharing, the church itself was devoted to Christ, and there, a great fear came upon all of them. I mean, we can come to church living in a, an adulterous relationship and hear a sermon and walk out and nothing happens. Can you imagine what would happen if the fear of God fell on every one of us and just by coming in the presence of God, we were convicted of our sins, even our hidden sins that we've justified and tried to determine that it's really okay, it's just how I am? What are these wonders and signs? Because that's what exactly what happens in Acts chapter 3. We have these exploded in front of us in, in incredible detail. The word wonder is often associated with the word signs, and it's basically a miracle or a mighty work that are literally startling and imposing. 
The Greek word means that when a miracle takes place or when a wonder takes place, that the people go, oh, wow. I mean, they're, 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 the mind is blown. They're, they're shocked at what has happened here. That it's not like, oh, wow, really? Well, this must be a miracle. You ever heard people say that? Hey, God really worked out a miracle in my life. Really? If it was a, a biblical miracle, a miracle like they were performing then or God was performing then, you'd be like this. Oh, man, God worked out a miracle in my life. Let me tell you about it. And how often does that happen? The word signs, of course, are basically miracles, are basically wonders. But what happened is God in his providence takes those miracles and points to a reality beyond the miracle himself. There's someone that's healed, and that's a miracle. But all of a sudden, if the person is healed, if God uses that to point to the one who did the healing, to Christ himself, then all of a sudden it became a sign, a sign pointing to something other than the miracle. And when these two words come together, they, signs and wonders or wonders and signs, they're not talking about two separate classes of miracles. They're talking about two aspects of the same miracle, but one leading to this lasting memory. Yeah, I remember. I remember what God did, and it was an incredible thing. In the Old Testament, if you remember, God would create a miracle, and then he would say, I want to turn the miracle into a sign. In other words, we're going to cross the Jordan River, and here's what we're going to do. We're just going to have the priest go out and stand in, in ankle-deep water, and all of a sudden the water gets heaped up up there, and we're walking on dry land. And Well, that was an incredible miracle. Right, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to take 12 stones, and each stone represents one of the tribes of Israel, and I want you to pile them up as a pillar there on the shore of the Jordan River. Why? So when your children's children children say, why are these stones here? Remind them as a sign of what God did for you when we crossed the river. Do you remember? Saying did the same thing with, with uh, when Jericho fell and, and stuff of that nature, turning a miracle into a sign. We find all through the New Testament that God uses miracles and signs, wonders and signs to point to the reality that you and I have experienced in Christ. In a in Peter's sermon, look what it says. He's quoting Joel now. I will show wonders, but where? In the heavens above. And signs, those are the wonders. What do those si wonders mean? Signs on the earth beneath. And then he defines, Joel defines what some of those are. Blood and, and fire and vapor and smoke. Later on in the same sermon, he says this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by what? by miracles. And this is deutamos. This is the word we have for explosive, miracle-working, enabling, capable power. A man attested you by deutamos, by explosive miracles and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst. But you already know this. You already know he's done these kind of things. Acts chapter 4, the church is being persecuted, and so the, they, they go, they've been commanded not to speak or teach anymore in the name of Christ. They say, you can't muzzle a man of God. They go back to the church as praying, but instead of the church cowering and being afraid, the church prays that God will give them more power. Look what it says here. Now, Lord, look at their threats and grant that your servants with all boldness may speak your word. So, all right, so... How do you speak the word with more boldness? By stretching out your hand to heal. Wow, that's 
It's very specific. And that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. The early church says, we want to we have signs and wonders and miracles authenticate our message. We have determined in our culture, God doesn't do that anymore. Because why would God need to authenticate the message? Because we have the Bible, which happens to be foolishness to people who are perishing. True? Talks about that in 1 Corinthians. And, and so we've adopted this mindset that, oh, that was just for them, but not for us. And the question I always ask is, based on what? A deduction. Based on what? A hermeneutic, but not based on a clear teaching of Scripture. Acts chapter 5. So fear came upon all the church, and an ice and fire, and all who heard these things. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. You cannot deny the power and the moving of the Holy Spirit, even though the world tries to stamp it out. Acts chapter 6. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of priests were obedient to the faith. And then all of a sudden, Stephen shows up, the first martyr, and he shows up and he starts preaching. Well, look what the Lord says about Stephen. And Stephen, full of faith and dudamos full of faith in miracles, full of faith in power, did great signs and wonders among the people. Well, I thought it was just for the apostles. No, Stephen's not an apostle. Stephen was just a guy like you and I was determined to be a deacon and God decided to move through him. Barnabas and and others that we talked about weeks ago and we talked about what it meant to be an apostle. Acts chapter 7, this is Stephen's sermon that got him killed. And he's trying to remind the children of Israel how God did signs and wonders for them in the past and is still doing it today. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown Wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. He brought them out. This is not talking about God showing these signs and wonders. This is Moses showing, God showing these signs and wonders through Moses. Acts 14. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed where they were in Iconium a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord who, this is the Lord now, was bearing witness to the word of his grace. Wow, Lord, you bear witness to the word of your grace here. Do you still bear witness to the word of your grace today? Yes, but you and I don't believe it happens anymore, so we don't expect it or don't ask for it. But look what happens here. He, the Lord, is bearing witness to the word of his grace. How? By granting signs and wonders to be done by Paul and Barnabas' hands. Acts 15, then all the multitude, this is at the Jerusalem council where they've brought Paul and Barnabas in and all the Jews in Jerusalem are there, the Jewish Christians, and are trying to determine whether or not to sanction Paul and Barnabas' ministry to the Gentiles. Can the Gentiles become Christians on their own by grace through faith, or do they have to become Jews first? And so what I would expect Paul and Barnabas to say is, look, We preach the gospel, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people have got saved. But that's not what they said. Look at this. That all the multitude kept listening silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. It wasn't just that they got saved. 
It was God was authenticating their salvation by movements of the Holy Spirit in a profound way, which he had been doing from day one. Well, I hate these kind of sermons, Steve, because it just makes me feel real guilty because I don't see that stuff in my own life. I know. That's the whole point of what we're talking about here. You first must believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And once you believe, I think you'll find that you'll have this deep desire to know more about him and have him move in your life. Book of Romans. For I will not dare speak to any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. And what are those things? In mighty signs and wonders by the power, the dudamas of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and around to Illicum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. It's him. It's Paul talking about what Christ had done in him. Second Corinthians. I become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing I was behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance. Well, what are those signs? Signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Not engaging preaching, not PowerPoint and light shows and and messages that make people feel really cool, not, not thousands of people coming to Christ, but the same movement of the Holy Spirit he's had since day one. Book of Hebrews, remember this passage. Who if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? How was it confirmed to you by people who heard him? Next verse. God. God is also bearing witness, how? With signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, not according to the will of the person exercising it, but according to his own will. Now, we've gone from Acts to now the book of Hebrews. I mean, 30 years have now passed as God is still moving that way. And in 2 Thessalonians, the Lord talks about the day when the Antichrist will show up, and he's warning the people there to beware of the Antichrist, because just as God authenticates his message with signs and wonders and miracles, not to stop for 2,000 years and begin again, the Antichrist will also do exactly the same thing. The coming of the lawless one is according to the work of Satan, with all power, dudamas, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteousness, unrighteous deception among the par- those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. God continually moves out in signs and wonders and signs and wonders. And I believe he still wants to do it today. Matter of fact, he is, he is doing it today. He's just not doing it here because we don't expect it and we don't look for it and we don't need it. When we have an illness, we go to a doctor. Doctor loads us up with drugs. And then we have side effects of those drugs, so we go back to the doctor, and the doctor gives us drugs to counteract those drugs. And, I mean, you've been there. You know how it is. When my mom passed away, I mean, she never told us how sick she was. I mean, she never did. She went to the doctor all the time, uh, pain clinic a lot. And, and when, she, when she passed away, uh, my brother gathered up like two 
Walmart shopping bags full of medicine she was on. And I, I think she was taking like 30-something different pills. You know, just an immense amount of stuff. I mean, that's what we do. And, you know, we go to the medical profession, and when the medical profession says, sorry, we can't help you anymore, then we say, well, I guess we have to pray. You go to a country where there is no medical profession, where people are just struggling, they're having to live by faith, they don't have credit cards that allows them to live beyond their means, they don't have any of the the the... the comforts that we would call it of our society today. And, and you will find that they have to rely on Jesus to meet their daily needs. And he does. And he does in a profound way. You know, you have not because you ask not. And you ask and you don't receive because you ask with impure motives. And I wonder sometimes if we didn't have so much, we would ask for him more if he would not show himself more powerful in our lives as he did back then. Signs and wonders and miracles. I want you to look at the first one in Acts chapter 3. Now, this is the next event. This is, this is recorded by Luke. He obviously wasn't there when it happened. But he's talking about a wonder and a sign that took place among the many. And we don't know how many there were, but it talks about that, that many signs are being done. And, and this is just one in particular. And it says, now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the ninth at, at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, which is about 3 p.m. The Jews at that time would go to the temple three times a day. They go in the morning, they go at noon, and they would go in the afternoon at night. They would have three sacrifices during the day. And it was, it was kind of like a Catholic church where they, they run masses all the time. And you can every 40 minutes, you just kind of choose the one that you want to go to. And, and so they're going up to the temple around the ninth hour, 3 p.m., and praying. I'm sitting here going, why? You're Christians now. No, no, I know. But it's inconceivable for Peter and John and the rest of the disciples not to be where other people are praying, not to be where the people who are the apple of God's eye are praying. I mean, and we've been redeemed. We're completed Jews, but we're not even called Christian yet. We don't even get called Christian until chapter 11, verse 26. And they were first called Christians, not in Jerusalem. They were first called Christians in Antioch. Do you remember? And so they're still viewing themselves as having received something incredible. And so going with their other Jewish brethren who Paul said, if it was possible, I would give up my own salvation for the sake of my brethren. They were were going there at this hour to pray with them. And it says a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried whom they had day, who they lay daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Now we know later on that this man is 40 years old. So here is this guy that was born a cripple. Born a cripple. He, uh, he doesn't, uh, <laughs> he, uh, he obviously has, uh, has never learned to walk. His, we're going to find out later on, his legs are weak and his bones are probably twisted. And, and every day, his parents or somebody would come and says, you need to be productive. You need to do something with your life. So they come and they lay him there at the temple at the gate called Beautiful, which is on the east side of the entrance to the temple, uh, or they believe it is near the court of the women. And so he's laying there and he's been there years, maybe even been there decades. This guy is over 40 years old. You think Jesus ran into him? Yes, everybody ran into him. Everybody knew he was there when they would go to the temple and they would go through that gate beautiful to worship the Lord. All the times they did and all the times that Jesus did, they passed by and saw this man sitting over here like 
like, uh, like a homeless beggar with his cup up asking for alms, which is all he can do. In our culture, we don't even like to look at people like that. And after a while, we have a tendency of turning away and want to block our vision from them. Have you ever noticed that? You know, there's somebody begging and it comes up to us and our first response is he's probably faking or is an alcoholic or, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And after a while, if it's the same guy on the same street corner, we find ourselves walking on the other street corner or turning our back this way or looking at our phone as we walk by because we just don't want to see it. We don't want to see the guilt. And I mean, this guy's been there for years. Parents probably put him out there as a kid because a kid would tug on more people's heart. So he may have been there for 30, 35 years. Same spot, my spot, day in and day out, getting alms. Every worshiper that went to the temple through that gate passed him. All the priests that went to worship passed him. I believe that the disciples had seen him many times before when they came to Jerusalem and passed him. I believe Jesus had seen him, but for some reason, sovereignly, chose not to heal him at that time. Certain man laying from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. Now watch this. Luke is a physician. Luke is a historian. Luke talks about in the book of Luke that he wants to orderly lay down for Theopolis all the things that happened, and his words are very precise. And you will find in Luke's description here, you will find the trappings of being a physician because when this miracle takes place, I want to describe exactly what happened. It says, fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said something that we never say to homeless people. Look at us. Look at us. I remember one time um, at New Life 91.9, we had gone to the Dove Awards in Nashville, Tennessee, and they put us up in a Hilton hotel. And so we're staying at the Hilton downtown and you know, eating these incredible meals that they were laid out for us. And the whole day was just sitting around, talking to Christian artists and going to concerts. And I mean, it was kind of a schmooze fest of the opulence of Christianity. And I remember... Um, in the evening, they would have these special concerts and, and messages at the Ryman Auditorium, the famous Ryman Auditorium. And, and after that was done, you would just walk another block back to your Hilton Hotel in this incredibly expensive room. And, and so we had, we had been at the Ryman, and somebody was preaching on what it meant to follow Christ. And it was really, I think it was Louis Gigolo, and it was really inspiring. And, and Gary Moreland and I were walking, uh, walking back and, you know, we're talking about, I mean, that was incredible. I mean, didn't you feel the presence of God there? I mean, that was, that was just, that was great. I mean, I could listen to that all day long. He says, yes, we crossed the street and we turned the corner to go into the hotel. And there was kind of a, kind of a stair step that went down to a locked door in the, at the, at the uh, Hilton, kind of a, I guess, a service entrance or something like that. And it was a homeless guy that was down there in the darkness. And as we walked by, he cried out and he said, hey, can you help me out here? And Gary and I looked at him and scurried off as fast as we could because we didn't have time to help this guy. We were too busy talking about how good and glorious and gracious God is. And we both turned into the hotel and stopped. And the guilt was like immense. God, what did we just do? You know, we did exactly the opposite of what Christ would have done. 
had Gary stopped and said, hey, look at me, look at us, I would have been a little unnerved. Because it's like, now you got to give them something. Now you got to do something. I mean, the guy's asking for alms, and instead of just dropping something in his bucket and walking away, you know, you're actually demanding his attention. Look at us. Verse 5, so he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man did nothing. Nothing. He just sat there. And he, this is Peter, took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately... His feet and his ankle bones received strength. I love the way Luke wants us to know. And immediately he was healed. That's Mark. And immediately he could walk. That's Matthew. Luke, no, let me tell you exactly what happened here. I mean, these ankle bones who were weak and couldn't support his own strength, maybe they were twisted under and stuff of that nature. All of a sudden they regained strength. And it says in verse number eight that he, so he leaping up. I mean, we've gone from, we've gone from rise and walk and I can see the, the lame guy go, what? What? Do you, do you not see the situation I was born in? I don't even know how to walk. I haven't been taught how to walk. To Peter grabbing him and lifting him up, and as soon as he lifted him up, he was healed, and now this guy is leaping, it says, stood up and walked and entered the temple with them. Watch this, walking and leaping and praising God. Peter took him by the right hand. His feet and ankle bones received strength, and his healing was immediate. Immediate, not progressive. We're real big on progressive healing, which may or may not even be a healing at all. Every time we see Christ heal, um, they're they're immediate. It's an immediate healing. I was blind, now I see. It's not like I was blind and my eyes getting a little bit better, and three years later I can almost pass and get my driver's exam. It's not that way at all. This is an immediate healing that takes place. Just just watch how this goes a couple times in Scripture. Acts chapter 3, again, he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately, when he lifted him up, immediately this healing took place. Matthew uh, 8 says, And Jesus put out his hand and touched him and says, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately, not progressively, but immediately his leprosy was cleansed. I am willing, I touch a leper, boom, the lesions are gone. Everything is gone. The guy's skin is, is pure and white. The cracked, swollen lips and, you know, are, are gone. If the guy had fingers that had fallen off, they obviously grew back. He was immediately healed. Well, that only happens back then. Really? You should read more about what happens in other countries. And Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes. And when he touched their eyes, immediately they received their sight. And turn to follow him immediately. 2020 vision. Mark 4. This is a dead girl. It says, And he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talui kumin, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. And as soon as he said that, immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years old. And I love this. And they were overcome with great amazement, which means they probably couldn't even stand. They slipped down the ground and went, oh, my God. What, what just happened here? My 12-year-old daughter immediately was brought back to life. Immediately. How did that happen? 
Verse number nine says that all the people saw him walking and praising God. And then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, there's a couple things we need to know about healings and about operating in the Holy Spirit. First one has to do with authority. I mean, I find this kind of amazing. Here's what Peter says. Silver and gold I don't have. I got that. You don't have any money because you're a poor guy, and I got it. You're just serving the Lord. He's meeting your needs daily. But what I do have, I give to you. What, what, what do you have? Does he have something we don't? I mean, was he given like 20 um, like healing cards from the Lord that he can spend them anytime he wants? And I got two left, and I'm going to give one to that guy over here, but you get this one today. I mean, what did he have? It says, in the name or the authority of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Do you have that name? Do you have that authority? Has the Holy Spirit filled Peter? Has the Holy Spirit filled you? Is the Holy Spirit miserly when it comes to dispensing his gifts? Does he only give gifts to Peter and not to you? And then he has the audacity, Jesus has the audacity to show us what the church is like, what it's like when he's filling his disciples to the fullest, and then has the audacity to tell us we can have the abundant life, but it can't be like theirs? Is that not insane? But that's what we've conveniently convinced ourselves, not because God has changed, because we quit believing. We, we quit understanding who this Holy Spirit is. I mean, what was it that Peter was going to give to this man? Well, there was faith involved, and God must have spoken to Peter, and I mean, something must have happened, because, I mean... I see in the scriptures that faith enter into, enters into these things, and was faith instrumental in this healing? And if so, whose faith was it? Was it the guy's faith? Was it the lame beggar's faith? Or, or was it Peter's faith? Or was it somebody else's faith? I mean, as you study the scriptures, they will show you that when it comes to faith, there's really three possible agents of faith when it comes to the moving of the Holy Spirit or a healing like this. And I want you to, I want you to get this. Because it's really, really important. The person needing the healing is only one of those three. And God has shown in Scripture that he can move in any one of these three. For example, the first one, of course, is the person seeking healing. I have a need. I'm coming to Christ. I believe. I'm, I'm asking for a healing. And therefore, he sees my faith and he heals me. We have this in Matthew chapter 9. It says, and when you come into the house... Blind men came to him, and Jesus asked them a question. He wanted to know about their faith. He says, do you believe I'm able to do this? And they said, yes, Lord, I am. So they have expressed faith. And then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, let it be done. Not Peter's faith, not these other people's faith, not faith in general, but your faith. And so one of the agents that he uses is your faith. If you need a healing... You have to believe that God is able, and we all believe that, don't we? We just don't believe he's willing. What a terrible thing to say about our God, you know? The second is the faith of an intermediary. 
It doesn't have to be the faith of the person who's sick. It could actually be the faith of somebody else. If you remember, there was a Roman centurion that came to Jesus. And the Roman centurion says, look, I have a servant. He's like a son to me who's, who's sick and, and he's dying. The servant probably didn't even know the Roman centurion was going to Jesus. And he comes up and says, listen, uh, if you'll just say the word, I know he'll be healed. Because I, like you, am under a man, a man under authority. I don't have to see. You don't have to go to my house. Just say the word and I know he'll be healed. And Jesus said, I sure as I say to you, I have not found such great faith even in all of Israel. And a couple of verses later, it says, he said to the centurion as an intermediary, go your way. And as you have believed, let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that hour. Healed that hour. So the servant didn't have faith. It was the centurion that had faith, believing for the servant. And God sometimes uses that second agent to bring a lot about a healing which I find really encouraging, don't you? It means you and I can pray and you and I can believe for somebody else who may not even know we're doing that or maybe not even may not even believe in the God we believe. There's no indication this, le- or this cripple guy did. And the third one is the faith of the person God used in the healing. Not the intermediary, but in this case, Peter. Now watch how he expresses this faith. Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And it doesn't say the man did that. It just, nothing happens. Rise and walk. Those are just words that are spoken. Yeah, but those words are empowered by faith. Rise and walk. And then Peter acting on that faith. No, no, I... I spoke in the word, in the name, and the authority of Jesus Christ. I believe something has taken place here. And he reaches up and he grabs that man by the right hand. I love the way Luke does this. Not just grab, by the right hand and lifts him up. And as he's lifting him up, it says, then immediately his feet and ankle bones receive strength. You mean to tell me that it's possible that some of my prayers could be more powerful if I had more faith? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the disciples asked Jesus two things. Lord, teach us to pray and then increase our faith. Do you remember? Yes, absolutely. And then the timing. I mean, why did it happen here? I mean, why in the world did he get healed this way on this day? And why, why, wasn't, why didn't Jesus heal him years ago? Or months ago, or last time he was in Jerusalem. Because there's a purpose and a providence of God in all of this. You know, sometimes God wants to do something, but he doesn't want to do it when we want it done. You ever noticed? And if we push and force his hand or or make it happen anyway, it's kind of like a message we preached a couple weeks ago on Acts chapter 1, where it talks about the right thing at the wrong time. Still the wrong thing. But here, there was a, there was a, a sovereign move. I mean, if you and I were Peter and John, and we saw this man that was crippled, what we would do is probably pray for him. You know, I will pray for you, and I will pray that God will heal you. And I'm sure Peter and John prayed for him. I'm sure the disciples have prayed for him. I'm sure that however much time elapsed from Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 3, if they went daily to the temple to pray, they passed this guy, they saw this guy, they added him to their prayer list, they all got together on Wednesday night or whenever they got together, and they prayed for that guy. Just pray for God's healing. Pray God will meet his needs. Pray God will introduce him to the Christ. Pray, 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 pray. But on this particular incident, on this particular day, for some reason that's not recorded in Scripture, Peter knew it was different. 
something spoke to Peter to act out on that faith. Because this is beyond praying, Peter. It's time for action to take place. It's time for your faith to swell. And, and something communicated to Peter that he knew that this day was going to be different. We can't be presumptuous in doing that, because then we end up trying to get God to do things he's not simply not ready to do. But Peter's relationship with Christ was so intimate and so tight that he knew exactly when to act on that faith, and an incredible miracle took place. And then this man has this undeniable testimony. I love this. I think this is why Jesus waited until he was gone, because Jesus had enough people testifying to him about what he had done, and now he was showing publicly, we're going to find out as we continue in in Acts, as a rebuke to the religious establishment at that time that he is God and he is Christ because of what he has given his servants and his children. Same thing for you and I. And so he, leaping up, can you imagine? Guys, never learn how to walk. Stands up. All of a sudden, by the time Peter's pulled him up, this healing has taken place. He realizes that his ankles that may have been like this are now normal, and he just, boom, he just leaps up. And he stood and he walked and entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. I'm, um, <clears throat> I'm convicted by the fact that this man was touched by Christ. He didn't even know who Christ was, and probably that was not communicated to him until later and understood who this Jesus was who did this. But the fact is that, that his life was permanently changed by the Lord Jesus Christ, and he could not contain his exuberance. Just like us, right? Just like us. We just can't wait to tell other people about how good and glorious God is. That's not how we do it in church. We just kind of come and sit and sing our songs and hear our Bible and then go on home. And and then we wonder sometimes why God doesn't move in our midst like he did back then. Or if he really did, how it would change you. And if you came busting through the door, just all on fire for Christ how everybody else would kind of shun you because your exuberance for Christ would be convicting to them and they would do everything they can, as you know in church, to bring you down to the spiritual level that we're all at. Isn't that amazing? I see that happening all the time. I had a friend one time, Ron Henderson, who used to tell me that whenever I get fired up for Jesus, all my lost friends applaud it. They don't understand who Jesus is, but hey man, if you're for it, I'm for you because I'm your friend. But when I get fired up for Jesus, my Christian friends put me down. Because if I'm fired up, then it's like in front of them is a model of what could happen, but cost something, and, and I'm not willing to pay the price. And then verse 10. Here's the verse we're going to close with today. Watch. It says, and then they knew. This is a different word for know. This word means to know fully, to have complete knowledge, to know thoroughly. They knew without a shadow of a doubt. These are Jews. These are lost people. These are people who had heard about Christ. You know, we're going to find out in a sermon that they were some of the ones that were there and called for Barabbas. So they knew without a shadow of a doubt that it was that man who sat begging for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. It wasn't an imposter. You're that guy. I mean, I've, I've, I've passed by you my whole life. I mean, I, I give you something every month or two. I mean, do you remember me? And, and it's you. It's, this really happened to you. You really got, what happened here? 
It says, and they knew completely, thoroughly, without a shadow of a doubt, that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder. Now, this is a different word for wonder. And this word means astonishment for admiration or to render immovable. They couldn't even move. They were in such shock. They just just stood there. I, I, I can't believe this is really happening. I can't believe God has done this. I mean, this is, I, I'm dumbfounded. I don't know what to say. I've got no explanation. I, I just find myself sinking to the ground in abject worship. God, what are you doing in our midst? What's happening here? I never saw this happen. They were immovable. They couldn't go on with the rest of their life. They, they didn't care about anything else because something so momentous had happened in their life. So they were filled with wonder and amazement. And this word from amazement means it's an ecstasy which, which the mind is for a time carried away. In other words, they literally lost their mind. They can't even think. We would say that they, were, they, were, they, they couldn't move and their mind was blown. I mean, they can't even carry on a conversation anymore. I don't know. I don't know. I'm on sensory overload. All my circuits are jammed up. I, I can't process this thing that we've had to happen. Do you realize that's the same guy? That's the same guy that we saw there for 40 years. I mean, what happened here? Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And what does this mean? What, what's going on here? I can't, I can't even imagine this. And then we have Peter's second sermon that we'll talk about next week. That kind of gives some, shows this miracle is not just a miracle, but this miracle is actually a sign. Now listen, I know I'm talking to a group of former Baptists in here. And I know that we've all grown up with the hermeneutic that, uh, you know, these kind of things just don't happen anymore. And okay, all right. I, I got that. I, I was educated that way and got all my degrees under that mindset. And okay, I, I bought into all the arguments they have. And, and so then I look at my life and I look at the life of the church around me and I, I ask, it's, uh, are, you, are you satisfied? I mean, is this, is this what you signed up for? Does it bother you to, to read all the momentous things God promises us in Scripture and then to come to the conclusion that they're not for you today? that somehow it only applied to those people and, and not you? Well, I, I know other people claim to hear from God, but I don't. I, I can, I've never heard his voice. I, I, I don't hear those kind of things. So therefore, since it hasn't happened to me, then it must not happen at all. Because if I come to the conclusion that, yes, it's true that, that God actually speaks to other people but doesn't speak to me, then it makes me feel bad. Doesn't it make you feel bad? Like I'm not wanted on the team. Like I didn't measure up. And, and so, so therefore, it's easier for me to change or it's easier for me to do what those people who seek Christ first do that actually hear his voice or have God move mightily in their life. It's easier for me to live in my apathy but to mentally convince myself that know their life or know it's some sort of emotional thing with them, or maybe it's Satan himself doing that to them, but, but surely all there is to know of Christ, I already know. And I'm telling you, that's the height of arrogance. It's the height of arrogance. This is God Almighty coming to live inside of us. And he's promised gifts, and he's promised power, and he's given us 
chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter and says, this is what it looks like. Here's what it looked like when I was on earth and I sent my disciples out two by two. Remember we talked about that Tuesday? Here's what they did and here's what the early church has done when I sent in the Holy Spirit and this is what you're to do. Well, I'm convinced it doesn't happen that way. I'm convinced it's not going to work because I've, I've let my experience overpower the promise of the Father. And we come to the conclusion that hearing God speak or having him move like this is something that's really beyond our grasp. And I'm here to tell you that it's not. It's not. So where are you in all of this? Do you, um, do you believe this stuff's for you? Or do you believe it's just for other people? Do you believe... Do you believe that there's a deeper relationship with Christ than you're experiencing right now? And if so, what are you prepared to do about it? I mean, aren't you, aren't you tired of just limping along spiritually when we can soar like eagles? We have the Holy Spirit living in us. And what's possibly greater than that? Amen? So I'm going to ask you. I'm going to close in prayer, and I'm going to ask you to just believe Just open up your mind to the possibility that everything that you've known and everything that you've experienced is maybe Little League compared to playing in the majors. And then Christ wants us to take us into the majors and uh, show us what true intimacy with him is all about. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the things that you've shown us and the powerful things that we see here. And, and Lord, I know that I know that we're Americans and we're so tied up with this world and our entrepreneurial spirit and just accumulating our stuff and building for our future and raising our kids that sometimes we don't seem to have time for the things that's most important. But Lord, do you realize how just a powerful word of you would change everything in our lives? And Lord, I know, I know it's your will that you speak to us daily. Just speak to us every time we speak to you. That our, our times with you are not just one-sided prayers that we're hoping to get through like some religious rituals. But it's a conversation between a father who loves his children and a child who adores his father. Lord, would you convict us and encourage us to set out the necessary time to to get on our face before you and just speak to you and have you speak to us to wait until you do. And Lord, would you teach us to, to hear your voice and to be used by you. And Lord, we just want to surrender our lives to you for whatever purpose you have. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.